Uh, so if you haven't been here in a little while, let me catch you up real quickly. Uh, my first week behind the pulpit here as your pastor, I had an opportunity to offer us a new mission statement for the future of Cedar Street Baptist Church as we preached and, and we talked out of the book of Acts. We talked about Cedar Street Baptist Church where heads, hearts, and hands are being transformed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then last week I offered what I pray will be our two guiding principles for all future ministry here at Cedar Street Baptist Church. And those guiding principles that we talked about out of the book of John chapter 1 are grace and truth. And we talked about the dangers of people who lean too much on the side of grace or too much on the side of truth. And how God has called us to have that sweet balance of both because it's the Lord Jesus Christ who came bringing grace and truth. Then I said we were going to open up God's Word today and begin a new series together. I believe in expository preaching, which means word by word, verse by verse, walking through a book to get a steady diet of God's Word. And so the book of Mark, I thought, would be a great place for us to start. So today begins a new sermon series and a new journey together. And the sermon series that we're going to walk through here for the book of Mark, I've entitled, Jesus Is. Okay, the title of our sermon series is, Jesus Is. And we're going to be walking through the Gospel of Mark to see a short yet action-packed book and see how Jesus Christ proves over and over that He, in fact, is the Son of God. But before we begin our study of Mark chapter 1 today, we're going to be in verses 1 through 8. And I know you can see the title up there on the wall. It's a proof of a promise-keeping God. I want to start this morning the way I typically like to start, by provoking your heart and mind with a question. And the question that I'd like to ask you, this, ask you this morning is this. Do you know a father who has always kept his promises? Do you know a father who has always kept his promises? I thought about all the people that I'd be asking that question to today, and I realize for some of you that brings joy to your heart and a smile to your face because you're reminded of a faithful father who did keep his promises. For others, that brings sorrow and grief to your heart because either your father was one that could not keep his promises or maybe you didn't have a father to make promises at all. And I thought long and hard about that today. Before we dive into the lesson, I do want to say to the men of this church, let this be a sobering reminder to all of us. Somebody told me this a long time ago. Before a child ever comes to true faith in Jesus Christ and begins to read his word, a child's understanding of who God is, in many ways, is shaped and formed by how they see their earthly father. And what a sobering reminder that is for the men of this church that until they know that father, they think that he is just like you as their father. And what a sobering reminder. But at the same time, as we come back to the scriptures today to look at the book of Mark, I want to encourage your heart today that you have a heavenly father who loves you and can be trusted with your heart because he is a father who always keeps his promises. God's holy word was written over the course of more than 1,500 years on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe, three different original languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. It was written by more than 40 different authors, and the message is consistent. God created us out of his great love for his glory and our joy. Sin separated us from a loving relationship with him, but he made a promise that one day he would send his son to redeem us from our sins and to restore our relationship with him. 
So Cedar Street, today as we begin our study of the Gospel of Mark, I want to encourage you to take a closer look at the message and ministry of John the Baptist as he points us to this undeniable proof that you can trust in our promise-keeping God. So having said that, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Mark. Okay? If you're not too familiar with the Scriptures, it's pretty early on there in the New Testament. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the first four books of the New Testament. All Gospels, Mark is the second. So New Testament, Matthew, then Mark. Okay? We'll be in chapter 1, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 8. And as the tradition of this church, if you could stand out of the reverence of the reading of the Word of God, again, we'll be in Mark chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 8 together. Hear the word of the Lord, starting in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Verse 7. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. And Father, we thank you and praise you for this day that you have made. Father, today as a church, we begin a journey through your word, starting at verse 1 of Mark and pledging to go all the way through. And Father, we know with each word and with each verse, you are proving yourself to be a God who makes promises and who keeps the promises he makes. Father, I pray a special blessing for everyone here today that either A, we would be strengthened in our faith that you are a good God who keeps his promises, or B, if, if anyone here has fathers that they could not have trusted, and, and in fact, that it has made them struggle to see you as a God worthy of trusting. Father, I pray that you would change hearts today. I pray that you would open up minds and hearts to receive the truth of this word and to respond to it in repentance and faith In your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, Father, we love you, thank you, and praise you. It's in his name we pray, and God's people said, amen. Please be seated. I had intended this week, and just in the essence of time with all that happened, it was uh, an interesting week, a little shorthanded, a lot of things happening at the last minute. Didn't have a chance to stick into the bulletin what what I've been putting together, which is a sermon series study guide. So I have in my pastor's library what I hope to, to be some of the most valuable resources that can help us to accurately and, and effectively read God's Word. And so it'll be in the bulletin next week, uh, things that you can trust in when you, when you read the book of Mark, you know, things uh, that address the theme, the outline, uh, the best way to read a gospel. Because let's be honest, this is 66 individual books and there are many different genres. Some of them are books of the law, some of them are poetry, and some of them are gospel, some of them are letters, and they need to be read differently. And so I'm going to have some tips that we'll put into the bulletin next week on ways that we can effectively read a gospel to learn, grow, and apply it to our lives. But let me give you just a snapshot. 
The theme of the book that we're going to read in the book of Mark is Jesus is. That's why I've named it the theme of our entire sermon series. Mark is writing this gospel to prove that Jesus, who comes into the world as a suffering servant, is in fact the Christ, the Son of God, who came to fulfill God's promise and save his people from their sins. Mark writes with a unique style because he's addressing a unique audience. Again, every book of the Bible is written by someone to someone for a specific purpose. Mark is writing this, or Matthew, excuse me, the first gospel is written to Jewish readers. Luke, when he's writing his gospel, he's writing to a culturally diverse Greek audience. And John is basically addressing the entire world at large. But Mark has been challenged to write to non-Christians in the city of Rome, and that's important. He's bringing the message of Christ to the most powerful empire on the planet at that time. And Mark is mindful of his intended readers with how he uses language and chooses stories to present Christ as the Son of God. There's always two things happening in, in any book of the Bible. You have the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God is intending through His Spirit every word and every verse. But at the same time, God does not remove the individual personalities of the writers. And as the writers are writing, they are choosing stories that they have heard through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And they're purposely putting them together in an order that will achieve a purpose. And so when we're reading a book, we need to know who wrote it. Why did he write it? What's the purpose of him writing it? And how can we apply that to our lives? So, let's talk about who wrote it, Mark. Mark is addressed in other areas of Scripture as John Mark. Okay, John Mark's the cousin of Barnabas, as we see in the book of Acts. And he's also an associate of the apostle Peter. Mark most likely came to salvation through Peter's ministry. And so, as we read this gospel, we see these accounts. We can believe that they're divinely inspired accounts that Peter originally had taught to him. Okay, so when we read the New Testament, every single book that we see is either written by an apostle or by the direct associate of an apostle. So they either had an eyewitness of Jesus Christ or they were sitting with someone who did have an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. And again, all of this is being superintended by the Holy Spirit. It's very important to understand who Mark is as our author. Now, what about his focus? The key to this gospel is to see that he focuses primarily on Christ's miracles and not necessarily Christ's teachings. Coach Monty was in my office, and that was the first thing he said. I can tell he's read the book of Mark. The book of Mark talks a lot more about what Christ does and a little bit less about what Christ teaches. Some of the other gospels focus more on the teaching than the miracles, and that's why four gospels work so well together harmoniously in one book. We get all these different snapshots. We get see things that Christ did. We see things that Christ taught, and they all come together to give us this perfect portrait of Christ. But you have Mark, and he's writing to the, to the city at Rome, and these people, again, the most powerful empire at the time, and so he decides to write this short Okay, it's the shortest of the four Gospels, action-packed, miracle-by-miracle, story-by-story Gospel. And you'll see throughout the whole book, he continues to word, use the word immediately, immediately, immediately. And so you see story after story after story. It's kind of an action-packed documentary that you would see on Netflix in 2016. That's what the Gospel of Mark is like. And what he's doing in these miracles is this. Jesus is showing, or excuse me, Mark is showing Jesus over and over. He has divine power over nature. He has divine power over disease. He has divine power over Satan. He has divine power over demons. He has divine power over false religion. And he even has divine power over death. Why is that important? Well, 
as we walk through verse by verse here, and I'll start with Mark 1.1. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Sometimes you have to look deep to find the purpose of a book. Well, Mark says it in the first few words. Basically, in other words, Mark is saying, this is the beginning of a story. Well, I will show you that Jesus of Nazareth, through his astonishing miracles and divine power, is the Son of God who came to redeem humanity from their sin. Now, why is that important? Well, in America, in 2016... We have, many of us in this country have kind of eased into a cultural Christianity where we make this entire book about us instead of about him. We make a beeline to application before we understand explanation, okay? We see miracles and we say, well, that's what Jesus can do for us. But we forget Mark is showing us these miracles so that we can see who Jesus really is. In fact, I'm reminded of this story. Uh, Ashley's heard me do this impersonation many times, but... Uh, at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, where I studied in Wake Forest the last few years, the president of our seminary, Dr. Danny Aiken, one of the prominent men in the Southern Baptist Convention right now, he was my teacher, first teacher I ever had, first professor on uh, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays at 8 o'clock in the morning, hermeneutics, which is how to interpret the Bible. And he comes storming in now. He's a, not a very tall man. He's probably about 5'6", five, 5'7". But he, is, he rules with an iron fist. He comes storming into the classroom, 8 o'clock in the morning, with a pair of shades on, a Diet Coke in his hand, and he's just wired. And he was passionate about everything that he would say, and he had a real distinct Atlanta, Georgia accent. And I'll never forget this. He said one of his pet peeves was, as we'll see in a couple weeks in chapter 4 of the book of Mark, where Jesus calms the storm, he says, America looks at that verse and says, well, Jesus will calm the storms of my life. And then when Jesus doesn't calm the storms of their life, they say, I can't trust in Jesus. He said, that's not the purpose of the story. It's to show that Jesus has power over nature and therefore he is God. That's the purpose of the story. And I remember him sharing that. It was kind of a lightning bolt moment for me. And he said this to me. I'll never forget it. With that thick accent, he came up to me and he said, if any of you... Ever teach that John 4, Mark 4, is about Jesus calming the storms of your life, I will revoke your degree. So let it be said at Cedar Street Baptist Church that my degree will not be revoked because I will have every intention to teach the scriptures as they were intended when written by John Mark. So that sets the context for where we are, okay? Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But let's walk through the text here together. And as we do, let's see the, the movements of the passage through the life and ministry of John the Baptist. So the first movement here is the prophet prepares the way. Okay, the prophet prepares the way. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 together. Okay, we said just a moment ago, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold... I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This prophecy of a messenger originally spoken by God through Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus arrived is fulfilled through John the Baptist. Okay, John, we talked about this last week, I believe, is the cousin of Jesus. Okay, he was born months before Jesus as recorded in Luke when Mary, the mother of Jesus, went to visit her cousin Elizabeth who had been barren for many years but conceived this child, John the Baptist, as a wonderful miracle from God. 
John's birth was a miracle, but his entire life was built towards something greater than himself, preparing the way for the world to finally meet the awaited Messiah. A Messiah, someone who is both God and man, who would restore the relationship between God and man. And where was this promise of a Messiah first made? Well, all the way back at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. That's where the first sin took place in the Garden of Eden. Okay, Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, and she gave some to her husband, and he ate. And then sin and death and disease and the curse entered into humanity. But God did not leave them where they were. Okay, God, speaking to the serpent who is Satan, he basically makes a promise of things that will happen in the future. Okay, and he basically says to the serpent, you know, your, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the, there would come a man and his, he would have his heel bruised. Okay, that's the cross, but then he would crush your head and that's the resurrection. Okay, the cross is where Jesus had his heel bruised by the serpent. And the resurrection is when Satan is finally defeated and a way is made from death to life. That's a promise, and it was a promise made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And so from Genesis 3 to where we get here in Mark, the people of Israel, they're waiting for the Messiah to come. They're waiting for someone who's both God and man. They're waiting for someone who's to live perfectly the way that we should have lived, to die sacrificially, taking on the punishment that we deserve, making a way from death to life. And you walk through the entire Old Testament, and you see Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they're waiting. You see all these characters that come. Could this be the one? 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 And finally, you get to the Gospels and you see the one has come. And John the Baptist was there to prepare the way for him to come. He was there to come. The entire nation of Israel, they lived and they died with this promise as they awaited the arrival of the Messiah who would be the fulfillment of more than a millennia's worth of prophecy. Here in this repeated passage from Isaiah, which is verse 2, we see John basically saying this, the time's finally come. We better be prepared. Let's level the roads. Let's make them presentable and safe because the Lord is coming. He's really coming. John is speaking as a prophet of God in the nation of Israel, but this is notable because the last book of the Old Testament, okay, the last book of the Old Testament is what? Malachi. And Malachi the prophet in verse in chapter 4, which is the last chapter of the Old Testament, in verses 5 through 6, the last two verses of the Old Testament, he says that God will, quote, send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. He makes a prophecy, and then guess what happens? God goes silent for 400 years. From Malachi to when the Gospels start, God, silent. It doesn't mean that he's not present with his people, but God, who typically spoke to the nation of Israel through prophets, for 400 years does not utter a word. And I'm sure people in that span of 400 years would wonder, is God a promise-keeping God? He said he'd send this Messiah. We've been waiting all the way since the beginning of the garden, and all of a sudden you get all the way to Malachi, and then 400 years of nothing. But then we see that God, in fact, does keep his promises. It wasn't until John the Baptist comes as the second Elijah that God speaks directly to his people again and reminds them that this prophet has come to prepare everyone for the arrival of the awesome day of the Lord when the Savior will come and redeem his people. So, again, number one, the prophet prepares the way. 
But let's go a step further. Number two, the prophet proclaims repentance. Okay, look at verses four through six. It says, starting in verse four, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now let's go back and see the end of the Old Testament and make the connection. Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. Okay, the very end of the Old Testament. The prophet Malachi says that a prophet will come to, quote, turn the hearts of children to their fathers and the hearts of fathers to their children. That is repentance. Okay, the nation of Israel had fallen back into sin. The Jewish people were mistreating their wives. They were marrying pagans who worshipped other gods. They were not bringing God their best offerings. And the priests were neglecting the temple. And they were not teaching the people the ways of God. In short, the Jews were not honoring God. Then John appears on the scene and he begins proclaiming repentance and calling for Israel to turn away from their sins and follow God. He's basically saying it's time to get right with God. But he not only says it, he lives it. John doesn't just talk the talk, he walks the walk. He forsakes any creature comforts or luxuries, and he goes out into the wilderness as an act of worship, and he casts aside any distractions in his calling to serve the Lord. He was a picture of self-denial in appearance, in home, and even in his diet. John the Baptist was a living example of what later would be the Apostle Paul. He would become a man with a laser beam focus on God. In fact, I know Larry Compton walked with many of you through the book of Philippians. And there's one passage in there that kind of reminds me of the lifestyle that John the Baptist had. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14, Paul says this, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God, in Christ Jesus. I remember the first time I heard that passage preached, I was with Ashley in New Orleans, Louisiana. We were looking at seminaries, and we were in a chapel service at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. And the, uh, the one uh, speaking there was a professor named Blake Newsom. It wasn't a dynamic sermon where everyone fell on their face in repentance and miracles were happening in the sanctuary. I had a million things going through my head that day. I remember Ashley and I were praying about where God would have us to be, and she let me know New Orleans was not what God had in mind. Uh, it's amazing how God will use a spouse instead of a prophet sometimes to speak to you. We got that figured out real fast. But one thing I remember in that service, I don't know why I remember this, but Blake Newsom, the, the speaker that day, he just said, you know, Letting go of what's behind and straining towards what's forward. I'm not looking to the past. I'm looking forward and I'm looking to Jesus. He's the goal of my life and he deserves everything I have. You know, a couple of Wednesday nights in the sanctuary here, we had Bible study and we looked at Hebrews chapter 12, which basically says the same thing. Lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and run the, way, run the race to win the reward. Run the Christian race, making Jesus Christ the focal point of your life. John the Baptist lived that. John the Baptist preached repentance. That was his one job. God gave it to him. Go to the wilderness, preach repentance, prepare the way. And he did it. And he let nothing get in his way. 
He didn't worry about what he was wearing. He was wearing camel's hair. He didn't worry about what he was eating. He was eating locusts and honey. He didn't worry about what he was doing. He was preaching because that's what God called him to do. You know, I I think about this uh, movie. I think it was early 90s. Has anyone ever seen the movie City Slickers? Okay. There are many scenes of which I could not quote in a church. Okay. It's not a movie that I would recommend everyone go run and see, but it was a funny movie. And you have... um, trying to remember the actor's name. It was uh, Jack Palance, and it was Billy Crystal. So Jack Palance is the cowboy. Billy Crystal is the city slicker from New York City, and, and they're out there out west. I think it was in Arizona or somewhere out west, and they're riding on horses, and they're talking about life, and Jack Palance has the cowboy hat on. He's got the red bandana. He's got the cigarette hanging out the side of his mouth, and he's speaking with words of wisdom as they're riding the horse, and he's talking about how much he just loves to herd the cattle. And then you have Billy Crystal, who's got the New York Mets cap on. He looks way out of place on that horse. And he's looking over to Jack Palance, and he's saying, you got it all figured out. He said, you got it all figured out. And all of a sudden, Jack Palance looks at him, and he says, you know, you haven't figured out life yet, have you? He said, let me tell you the meaning of life. And he points up one finger. And Billy Crystal says, the meaning of life is your finger? And he says, no, it's that one thing. Finding out that one thing and dedicating your life to that one thing. I think about my own life. I think about my own salvation. I came to faith 10 years ago. And then I all of a sudden came to a church and I didn't know what God wanted me to do. There's so many different ministries. What did God want me to do? Well, a couple of years ago before I came to Cedar Street, I was a member just down the road at at, uh, Grace Community Church on Pulaski Highway. And Mike and Amy Holt, wonderful men and women of God, uh, had a chance to talk with them. And they said, what has God given you a gift to do? I said, I don't know, but I like to teach. And so they put me in what they called Kids Jam, which is their uh, children's church, basically. And I taught third, fourth, and fifth grade. First time I ever taught anything. And then, about a year later, came to Cedar Street. And Cedar Street put me in the classroom way back there, and I went from 3rd, 4th, and 5th to 6th, 7th, and 8th. Then I became a youth pastor, and I taught 9, 10th, 11, and 12th. And while I was youth pastor, Casey asked me to do the young adults. So I did post-high school up to about age 40, 45. And then I went to uh, North Carolina, and I taught the seniors. Became a deacon. Now I'm a pastor. I tell people I'm a pastor because i got nothing left to do. <laughs> but I did, I'm telling you, I did not choose this. I believe God chose it. And I believe he chose it because he told me what the one major gift that he's given me is teaching. And all I want to do is focus on that. And that's why I'm here. Now, I know as, certainly as a pastor, there's other responsibilities. But primarily, I believe that when I stand before God at my day of judgment, he's going to ask, how well and effectively have you dedicated yourself to the teaching and preaching of my word? But guess what? We're, we're a Southern Baptist church, which means we believe in the priesthood of all believers. And God has uniquely gifted everyone in this room to serve the church. And so my question to you today, let's make this point real. Let's make real application here. How can you find out that one thing? Well, if God has given you a gift, how about finding one ministry in this church and giving your heart to it, as big or as small as it may be? You know, when I think of Cedar Street Baptist Church, I do think about people and the ministries that they're associated with. I was just brainstorming the other night, and I thought, you know, I remember Bill Collins as a man every year collecting toiletries and socks and things for the nursing homes. He was dedicated to that one thing. 
I think of Dixie Odom as a woman of God who is always meeting needs. She sees a need, she meets a need. Sees a need, meets a need. Yesterday it was, I needed umbrellas at the funeral home. Two weeks ago, I needed cardboard taken out of my garage. Dixie Odom sees a need, meets a need. I think of Monty Tillman. I think as long as he can use his hands, he's going to tickle the ivories on that piano. It's a gift God has given him, and he has dedicated. You don't have to even ask. Okay, we had a funeral here yesterday. It was already assumed that Monty Tillman, because he's a part of this church, was going to play the piano. And he did always a wonderful job. When I think of Memorial Day, I don't have to guess where Jency Fordham is going to be. Memorial Day, year after year after year, she puts together the first and maybe the best vacation Bible school in this area because it's something that she has put her heart and her soul into. When I think of Awana, I think of Janie Sykes. When I think of Men's Christmas Project, I think of Ronnie Sykes. When I think of Praise Kids, I, I think of several people, including the Haddons. When I think of youth, I think of Joel. When I think of the children, I think of Jerry. You know, finding one ministry and putting your heart and your soul into it, however big or however small it may be. I'm starting to chase a rabbit here. <laughs> or as my, uh, as my professor at uh, seminary would say, those fuzzy bunnies. But John the Baptist was one who had one thing and he did it well. He preached repentance and he made a way. And I say that to all of you as well. Find that one ministry and give your heart to it. Third and finally, as we wind down here, of course, the whole point of the reason that he was preaching repentance. Number three, the prophet points to Christ. Verses 7 through 8, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John was not only humble in his lifestyle, but he was humble with his message. His ministry is not about him. It's all about Christ. He was only preparing the way. He was calling the people to repentance. And with the water he baptized, it was a foreshadowing of the Holy Spirit that would enter into all believers after the ascension of Christ and the day of Pentecost. You know, some people say sometimes you could say the Old Testament is promises made and the New Testament is promises fulfilled. And all that points together to the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And now as we sit here putting our faith in Him and believing as he, we have a promise keeping God that He's coming back again. That He is definitely coming back again. That brings us to the concluding thought here today. The prophet proves God keeps His promises. John the Baptist was able to prepare the way, proclaim repentance, and point to Christ because John believed in the promises of God. He never got to see with his eyes all of Jesus' miracles that we read about throughout this book, but he believed that when God made a promise to save his people, he would do it. Because of the promises already kept, we can also have faith in the promises that have been yet to be fulfilled. We can believe in the promises that Christ will return. And as we talked about yesterday at Miss Nell's celebration service, not only will Christ return, we can believe in the promises that if we put our faith in him, we are going to receive a beautiful new resurrected body on a resurrected earth. That is a promise that God has made. One day we'll walk through the book of Revelation together. He makes that promise over and over and over again. He's coming back. And you know what, how I know that he's made that promise? He's given us the down payment, the deposit, the Holy Spirit, proof that he is real, 
that he's done what he said he was going to do and that he will do what he said he's going to do in coming back and getting us and redeeming us and restoring us. New body, new earth, an old promise and a promise that is worthy of us believing in. So as we prepare for a time of invitation, I just want to say to all of you, if you had a great earthly father, know that your heavenly father is that much better. If you did not have a good earthly father, know that God is in the restoration business. He takes things that are broken and he puts them back together again. That's what God does. He makes promises and he keeps his promises. And before we enter into invitation, before we pray, I do want to say to anyone in this room, if you have never trusted in the promises of God, maybe again because you had an earthly father who was not trustworthy, Maybe it's because the rest of the world has wandered away from this book over and over and over. They've tried to disprove God as a promise-keeping God. They've tried to disprove the Bible. But over and over and over again, God continues to prove this is his word. He did make promises, and he does keep his promises. If you've never trusted in the promises of God, I pray that you would do business with him today. He offers you this unbelievable gift of grace. And he asks you to respond to it in repentance. Okay, that's what John the Baptist was preaching, turning away from your lifestyle of sin and putting your faith in him, that he saved you, that he loved you, and that he's coming back and will change you forever. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, again, we love you so much. You are a promise-keeping God. And Father, all of us have either heard or made promises in our life that we could not keep. But you keep them all, Father. You said in Genesis that there would come a, an offspring from the woman and that he would defeat Satan, crushing the head of the serpent. And he did. And he rose again. And he ascended to your right hand. And we believe another promise, Father, that he's coming back. And that when he comes back, he will make all things new. Father, we trust in that promise. We come back here every week because of that promise. Father, I pray right now that you would change hearts and minds for anyone in this room that does not trust in your promises. Move in their hearts, Father. Enable them to respond to this message in repentance and faith so they can receive the rewards of, of the fact that you are a God who keeps his promises. And Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, the greatest promise that you've ever made and kept. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.